Argument this afternoon, number 968732, Vincent Edwards et al. versus the United States. Mr. Chauvet, am I pronouncing your name correctly? Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the ambiguous general verdicts returned in this case cannot support the sentencing court's finding that the conspiracy embraced both objectives charged in this dual object conspiracy. The two objectives being the distribution of powder cocaine and the distribution of crack cocaine. And it cannot be for four reasons. First, Congress required the jury to determine the type of drug involved in the drug conspiracy before sentence could be imposed upon that object. Second, the Fifth and Sixth Amendment right to a jury determination of all the essential elements of a conspiracy requires the jury to determine what the object of the offense was and particular to the type of drug. Third, the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment does not permit punishment to be imposed in excess of the statutory maximum provided by Congress. And finally, nothing in the sentencing guidelines, to the extent that they ever could, uh, undermines these principles. With respect to what Congress intended, it's clear that in enacting Section 846, Congress wanted to fix the maximum punishment available to a person convicted of that section to the offense, the object of which the conspiracy was intending to accomplish. Uh, Mr. Chauvet, does your argument depend on finding that both the type and the quantity of drugs are elements of the Section 846 conspiracy? No, uh, no Your Honor, it does not. It's clear that Congress, in, in enlisting the various different factors in Section 841B, um, intended that some of them be elements of the offense and some of them not be. Congress made it ex explicitly clear in enacting Section 851 that the existence of a prior conviction was one of the factors listed in 841B that should not be considered by the jury. And it did so by removing it from the jury's consideration, placing it in a separate statutory provision, and saying that the judge should make that determination. It is also clear that in considering whether or not... Where is that? Section 851, yeah. Your Honor. Section 851... Yeah, by placing it in 851 rather than as one of the sub subsections of 841, you say? Yes, by removing it from the subsection of 841B and placing it in a separate statutory provision and then having the judge, not the jury, determine, and, and interestingly, beyond a reasonable doubt, what you, the... You have 851 in your, in your appendix? I, I don't think you do, do you? Um, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure that it is in the appendix, uh, Your Honor. Um, but it, it did remove that consideration from, from the jury. Um, what it did not remove were uh, the type of drugs and the uh, quantity. But it is not necessary that those be treated identically for purposes of an 846 conspiracy. And there are, are several reasons for that. First, Congress could well have intended that a conspiracy to commit a specific objective, which is an inchoate offense, which does not require the completion of the object of the conspiracy, uh, and has separate elements from an 841A uh, conspiracy uh, to embrace a more specific object than would, say, an ordinary 841A1 uh, violation, a possession or a distribution. Um, in addition... I, I don't understand what you just said. You want to say it again? Yes, Your Honor. A, a conspiracy offense... Uh, under 846, um, is an inchoate offense. And therefore, uh, the only two elements that the government needs satisfy beyond a reasonable doubt for an 846 offense is that a conspiracy with a particular objective exists and that uh, a particular defendant that was being considered by the jury be a member of that conspiracy. In many conspiracies, there are no actual drugs involved, uh, it, very typically in the case in which the agents pose as the sellers of drugs and they engage in negotiations and discussions with prospective buyers, and then a seizure or a bust takes place, an arrest at a, at a planned exchange of drugs for money, and there is, in fact, no actual controlled substance. In that case... Well, there, surely there's an attempt to buy a particular... I mean, are these drug dealers that stupid that they, they, that they don't contract to buy a particular substance? Not at all. Not well, at that all, would be a conspiracy then, wouldn't it? That's Absolutely, it would be a conspiracy eviction. But now the question becomes... What maximum penalty did Congress provide for that conspiracy? And the answer to that question is, 
what was their conspiratorial objective. That's what Congress expressly says in, in Section 846. Punish persons who agree to commit a very specific object as if they had committed that object. And in the case of the type of drug, uh, that specific, uh, excuse me, in the case of a distribution offense, that specific offense is, is only knowable by reference to the specific type of drug. But why not as m- amount as well, since there's such a, right. so much turns on amount? Why does it turn on the type of drug more or less than the amount of the drug? Your Honor, it can be, and, and in fact, uh, it's not squarely raised uh, in this case. But uh, we would we would submit that uh, quantity uh, could be considered an element by uh, Congress. Congress could have intended it to be an element, but it isn't necessarily the case. That question isn't squarely presented. What we you're saying you're saying that type of drug is an element of the offense, but amount of drug is not an element of the offense. Uh, Justice Breyer, we're not saying definitively that it is not. An element are of you well? What is the argument? Is the, the argument is that it might be an element. Well, I, we believe that it is. However, you, you believe that amount is as well. It, so, in other words, we have a big list in 841b of penalties, and the penalties vary sometimes dramatically depending upon the amount of the drug and depending upon what kind of drug. And as you said, recidivism, which is treated specially. All right. Now, your point is that the jury has to find. Uh, Type and probably amount. Yes, yes. Now, the difficulty with doing that is why does it have to find that? Because Congress intended it? Because Congress intended it. Why would Congress have intended the following? A person is accused, for example, of possessing with intent to distribute more than one thousand, more than five, between five and ten kilograms of heroin, let's say. And the person's defense is, I wasn't there, I was in Chicago. Is he supposed to make the alternative defense? Oh, by the way, if I was there, it was only half a kilo. I mean, why would we ask a jury to uh, decide that kind of thing? Why would we want to put a defendant in that kind of position? Your Honor, I suppose there are two uh, answers to that, to that question. The first is, the question becomes, what is the appropriate punishment for an individual like that who had that agreement. And that's why I would think that 841B uh, includes uh, punishment factors. And if it is supposed to be punishment factors, there is no problem for the defendant. And if it's supposed to be punishment factors in respect to amounts, I don't see how you could distinguish why it shouldn't be punishment factors in respect to type. One, One of the ways that we attempt to distinguish it Justice Breyer, is to note that as part of the 841A1 elements, the jury is asked to conclude that the substance being agreed to be distributed or manufactured under an 841A1 and A46 offense, the jury is going down the road of determining, and it must determine, that the agreement impacted a controlled substance. Now, not every substance is a controlled substance, so the jury must make a decision, a finding, that the particular substance contemplated in 846 was one of the substances listed in section 812. When, when, you, when you say finding, you're not talking about a special verdict, you're just talking about a finding in its deliberative process that results in a verdict of guilty. That, that's, that's correct, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. They, they, they are asking themselves, was there an agreement to distribute a controlled substance? To know that, to that this is not salt or sugar, they must come to the view that it's one of those substances under 812, at least that that was contemplated in this conspiracy. That means, that, that means that the jury is already going down that road in determining what the substance is. We think that's distinguishable. All the jury perhaps has to determine is that it was a controlled substance, but not a specific type or amount. I mean, that's possible under the structure of the statutes, it seems to me. Uh, that's possible, uh, Justice O'Connor. But in concluding that it is a controlled substance, they are concluding that it is one of the substances identified in Section A12, which lists the only con- all the controlled substances there can be. And so they're making that finding. They may not come out and say, we find it was cocaine or we find it was heroin, but they are saying we find it, it was a controlled substance. Um, and therefore... It means that there's been a violation of the statute, and then perhaps the punishment is up to the sentencing authority, the judge. We, we submit, Your Honor, that... Uh, the jury going down that road to make that finding, uh, uh, Congress made clear that that's the kind of finding that the jury should make and that the jury must make and not leave it solely to the sentence. But or, ordinarily, 
uh, a finding in terms of a statute is, is perfectly sufficient, isn't it? Here, this 841 says, it shall be unlawful for any person knowingly or intentionally to manufacture, dispute, or distribute, or possess uh, a controlled substance. So isn't it, uh, one would think that a verdict says guilty of 841 or guilty of, of possessing or conspiring to distribute a controlled substance would be sufficient for the guilt element. Mr. Chief Justice, we don't, we don't believe that, that that is sufficient, that particularly in a case such as this where the government charges not just any controlled substance but a very specific controlled substance. You think it would have been okay if the government had just charged a controlled substance generally and left itself free to prove any number of other things? I think that it would be permissible for the government to have charged uh, simply a controlled substance, but I think it would have additional problems of its own. Uh, that is to say, I think there might be a case in which it's not exactly clear whether which of the controlled substances uh, a particular defendant conspired to. And in that case, uh, the government might not want to commit that it was particularly heroin, or a jury might be able to conclude, well, I think it was heroin, or I believe beyond a reasonable doubt it was heroin, I believe beyond a reasonable doubt it was cocaine, I'm not sure whether it was marijuana, under the instructions that the judge gives me, I must, I must find this individual uh, guilty. So that in this case, um, jurors uh, could have decided that these individuals conspired to distribute crack cocaine, or they might have decided that they distributed powder cocaine. Well, regardless, wouldn't evidence, uh, if there was such, uh, showing there was some involvement with cocaine base be factored in as relevant conduct under the guidelines? I don't see how the sentences would change in any event. Um, Justice O'Connor, they would change in a number, for a number of significant reasons. First of all, the statutory penalty is not based on a consideration of the guidelines or relevant conduct, but it's based on what was the agreement, what was the offense of conviction. So that if the offense of conviction well, the were... The offense was a conspiracy to possess and or distribute uh, a controlled substance. That, that's not the offense that was charged in this case. And, and uh, we would submit that to know what the statutory maximum penalty is, uh, that there needs to be a determination as to the type uh, of, of drug. After all, in this case, the differential in punishment between the two objects was 100 to 1. Uh, 100 grams of powder cocaine is treated equivalently uh, under the guidelines, uh, excuse me, under the statutory penalty, uh, as the same as 1 gram of crack cocaine. And that was why the particular problem that arises in this case um, is, is especially important. Depending on which objective... What was the difference in the, in the maximum sentence that could be imposed under the one or the, under the other? That's a very difficult question to answer, Justice Scalia, because the indictment in this case charged no specific threshold quantity in terms of giving us notice as to the particular drug. Under the indictment, I mean, the government suggests in its, in its brief that we should just simply look at the indictment and look at the statute, and that's how we know our maximum penalty. If that's, in fact, the standard, looking at this indictment in which there's no specific quantity or threshold quantity even alleged, no reference to any subsection under 841B, the maximum penalty is 20 years for that type of offense and when there's a Schedule I or Schedule II narcotic involved. So the maximum penalty would be 20 years. But what happened in this case is that at sentencing, the judge made some findings with regard to a different sort of conspiracy, that is one which embraced both the crack cocaine and the powder cocaine, made specific findings about exact amounts of type of drug and quantity, and determined that with, with respect to some of the petitioners, the maximum was life imprisonment. But with respect to other petitioners, the maximum was 40 years. So what you're saying is if it was powder cocaine, it was the maximum was 20, and if it was crack, the maximum was 100. No, well, if it was crack, the maximum would also be 20. If the sole basis for determining the maximum punishment is to look at the indictment uh, and to read the statute, that's what the government says you should do. But in reality, what the district court did was not simply look at the indictment. What the district court said is quantity determinations are mine to make. And so once I make these quantity determinations, that alters the maximum penalty. Of course, I, I guess a conspiracy is a completed offense uh, even before the drugs are actually purchased. Suppose the conspiracy is, is uh, the, the conspirators are apprehended uh, before they affected the buy. How does the, how does the judge determine the sentence in that case? What, what the judge must do in that case 
is first determine what the statutory penalty is. It first must say to itself, what was the offense of conviction? And once it determines that, let's, let's say that there were negotiations, recorded conversations, and it appeared that the person was trying to acquire five kilograms of crack. Uh, my, my, my hypothetical is they're not sure they want to just acquire some. How much do you have? And then, then they're apprehended. In that case, uh, the only way that uh, a sentencing judge could determine what the maximum penalty would be, first under the statute, is to make it finding uh, as to what the amount was, or at least what the threshold amount was. That is, was it more than 50? Was it more than 5 kilos? Yeah, they haven't gone far enough in the negotiations. I assume then he would have to use whatever the minimum is. In the event... Most he can say is that there was some transaction, but I can't say that there's enough to kick it over into any punishment higher than the minimum. Isn't that your position? And if that, you don't know, the minimum is what governs. Exactly. And it also depends then on the type of drug. And if he doesn't know the type of drug, then there is that the same thing. There's if you no don't know, you assume it's, it's the one that's punished the, the and least that is, severely. And is your argument, it can't be about the, the indictment says these particular people conspired to distribute, to, to possess with intent to distribute cocaine, and they also conspired with intent to uh, possess with intent to distribute cocaine base, namely crack. And there's 26 very specific paragraphs. And it says that violated 846 and 841. So the person to get the penalty will look up 846 and look up 841, and he'll see the big list, and there's a big list of maximums. There's nothing wrong with that, is there? Well, there's nothing wrong with that if he knows what the threshold quantity is. No, that's true of every instance of guideline sentencing. And it's true of every instance in which Congress has passed a statute that increases maximum penalties for what is called a sentencing factor. Am I right that you must be complaining about the one or about the other? I, I don't believe that I'm you are exactly correct. Because in this statute, under this specific statute, the, the statutory maximum changes based on not only the type of drug, but the threshold quantity of drugs involved. That's true of in every defense. instance in which Congress increases a penalty for what they call a sentencing factor. Am I right? That, that the possible... Generally, most of them fall within a statutory maximum. Sometimes Congress passes a statute, drugs, immigration, you know, where they say, if you've done X in committing the crime, the maximum goes from two years to 20 years or from... So you're complaining about all those. Is that right, or is there something special here? But we're complaining about that, but we're also complaining about the particular charge in this case and the way that the jury was instructed, because what we don't know uh, is what the offense of conviction was. We don't know whether this jury determined, because the, the jury that was instructed that it could find either powder cocaine or crack cocaine as an objective. Given that instruction, we don't know whether the jury found that this was a powder cocaine spirit conspiracy, a crack cocaine conspiracy, or perhaps both. And of course, it made no finding whatsoever on quantity, so you don't know that either. We don't as far know that. The jury is we don't know that. All the findings that happened that fixed the sentencing occurred right on the eve of sentencing, uh, during the sentencing process. I didn't do the math, but I, is, is, it, is, is, is it correct that if you draw this distinction between type of drug and quantity of drug, and you, you win your argument, and the court says, yes, the, the, the jury uh, must make the determination on type of drug. Uh, is it necessarily the case that all of these sentences would, in fact, uh, have, to be, uh, have to be vacated, given the fact that you let the judge make the quantity determination? I guess my question is, did the judge make a quantity determination even with respect to the lesser of the two drugs uh, that would support the sentences that, uh, or, the, or the ranges within which he sentenced? I think that the, uh, the answer to that question is yes, that it would necessarily affect uh, some of the petitioners. Each of the five petitioners... Some but not all. Some but not all. And it would necessarily affect all of them in determining first what the statutory maximum penalty is. Remember that the sentencing judge utilized the sentencing guidelines and said, here's what I conclude everybody is held accountable for, considering that the offensive conviction embraced both objectives. His findings as to what was relevant conduct or what amounts should be attributable would be uh, vastly different if he were to analyze this from the question of what if the conviction was merely a powder cocaine conspiracy. Did you, did you request an instruction that the jury be required to specify 
uh, amount or choose as between cocaine and cocaine base? Uh, no, Your Honor. The jury was instructed that it uh, could find the defendants guilty if they found either uh, cocaine or powder. Uh, and you didn't object to that instruction? There was no objection to that. It's our position, uh, however, Your Honor, that since the government brought the dual object conspiracy and since the government wanted to seek punishment on the higher objective, that is, the objective carrying the higher penalty, that it was incumbent upon them to seek such a, either a special... You're, you're not complaining about, uh, about uh, the jury's uh, finding your clients guilty. You're, you're saying you're willing to accept that verdict, but you're saying the way it went to the jury, all you can punish them for is, is the, the least of what was charged. That, that, that's correct. And the only way we would complain about what the jury determined, excuse me, about uh, what happened at trial, is if the government tried to take what resulted and say, but we can, the judge concludes that what you were convicted of was a crack conspiracy conviction. That, we say, is completely impermissible, um, particularly when the statutory penalties for powder cocaine um, are significantly less than those for crack cocaine. But you, you agree, don't you, Mr. Chobet, that if there had not been this ambiguity in the jury verdict, nonetheless a sentencing judge could have taken into consideration a wide number of things in deciding what to sentence your clients to. A prior offense, prior indictment, prior conduct? Under the sentencing guidelines, that's absolutely correct. Uh, that is, that it would not be true, though, however, in fixing the statutory penalty. But we acknowledge that under uh, this court's decision in Witt and Watts, that the judge, the judge is free to consider a wide range and not just simply say, well, I thought about it, but actually to make the, the findings required under the federal sentencing guidelines. But, but that is, again, a guideline determination. In this case, there were no statutory maximum penalty determinations made. What the judge did was just do the guideline analysis and then say, based on these guideline results, I'm now determining what the statutory maximum was. If, if, if that changes, um, in another case, we've been involved in this, but, but the, the, if that changes because it's not just guideline but also statutory add-ons, let's call them sentencing factors, um, if, if you think that changes the fact that it's a, a, a statutory sentencing factor that increases a penalty, if you think that makes a difference in your favor here, what do you do with the earlier Supreme Court cases, McMillian and so forth, that we've been looking into, which, which say that where you have a sentencing factor, such as possession of a gun, uh, which increases the maximum penalty, that can be a determination to be made by a judge. It needn't be charged in the indictment. Uh, and it needn't, in fact, in McMillian, I think, be found uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. So how do you deal with those cases uh, uh, and also win your case? And McMillan supports our position, uh, Your Honor, because. because in McMillan, there was no increase in the statutory maximum penalty. The only increase was in a mandatory minimum, so that the visible possession of a firearm in McMillan caused there to be a minimum of five years imposed, but did not in any way increase the statutory maximum. Why isn't that worse? Why aren't mandatory minimum penalties from a defendant's point of view actually a lot worse uh, than uh, an increase in the maximum? We, we think that um, they're bad, but it, the reason they're not worse in part, I think, lies in the power of a, of a sentencing uh, judge to grant an upward departure. The max, statutory maximum provides protection to a defendant uh, to prevent a sentencing court from going beyond the statutory, uh, well, statutory maximum. In this case, had there been a reason to grant an upward departure, for example, uh, with respect to uh, petitioners Joyner or Edwards, who received a 10-year sentence, uh, they might have gotten a 20-year sentence if that were the statutory maximum for them. Um, if they had been considered to have the same statutory maximum as Petitioner Ford, who had a life maximum, then uh, it would be very significant to know that even if there was an upward departure granted in this case, it would not exceed uh, 20 years uh, and, and risk you know, possibly a life sentence. And so under McMillan, the reason that one of the reasons we say that this is an essential element of the offense is because uh, it not only alters the range, but it alters the statutory maximum penalty. Um, uh, Mr. So are you saying that, that a special verdict would have been compatible with your view of this case? That is, the judge says, jury, the government has charged both powdered cocaine and crack cocaine, and so I want you to find specially as to each. That would be all right? Yes, Even Your Honor. Even though defendants don't ordinarily like special verdicts. The jury could have instructed, as it was, that you could find either or, but then, in addition, the jury should have been asked, which do you find, either powder, crack, or perhaps 
Both. And ask that in a special verdict. Yes. And then, then there would be a jury determination as to what the object of the yeah. conspiracy was. Does, does it follow from what you've been telling us that, that it would be uh, perfectly proper under your theory for the government to charge two separate conspiracies, one for powdered cocaine, the other for crack, and then for the punishments to be consecutive? It, yes, Your Honor, it is the logic of our position that the government is free to do that. And in fact, they are doing that every day with respect to distributions. In fact, the government, in response to defense arguments, that you can't do that, that violates double jeopardy. Crack and cocaine are the same thing. The government has said, no, crack cocaine and powder cocaine are different substances. They can be punished consecutively or cumulatively. Uh, and, and now, in this case, the government is saying, well, no, it's really just a controlled substance. Um, and, and so we think that's a significantly inconsistent position that the government is taking. We acknowledge that that is possible um, uh, to be done. Um, Mr. Chief Justice, I'd like to reserve whatever time I have. Yes, Mr. Schobert. Uh, Mr. Dumont, we'll hear from you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the Court. There is... Um, one issue that's rather straightforward that is genuinely presented on the facts of this case, and if I may, I'd like to address that just for a moment first. Some of the courts of appeals have held that when a drug conspiracy verdict does not reveal exactly what drug the jury may have concluded was involved, or more than one drug, that uh, under the guidelines, court is limited to sentencing only on the basis of the drug that will produce the lower penalty. Under the guidelines or under the statute? Under the guidelines. There are at least three... How can the guidelines control what, what statutory maximum is available? I don't understand that. Uh, in our view, they don't control that at all. But three of the courts of appeals have held that even if you're talking about a case where the statutory maximum and minimum are clear, that in terms of applying the guidelines, the district court at sentencing must apply, must take into account only the drug that will produce the lower guidelines sentence. But, but the statutory maximum and minimum cannot be clear if you don't know what the substance is. Uh, I'm not sure that's true, no, because you could have uh, a couple of possibilities, both of which would put you uh, into, into, say, the minimum category, the 0 to 20 category, mm. um, but one of which would put you at 19 years under the guidelines and one of which would put you at five years. So it can make quite a bit of difference. But they, they wouldn't be similarly uh, inconsequential as far as the guidelines are concerned? They're only inconsequential as to the statutory grades? I mean, would, well, I, my, my would the point guidelines is, treat differently two substances that are treated the same in the statute? The guidelines are much more specific about what, mm. how you do the quantity calculations and how you take things into account. But my point is only that even in cases where there's no controversy about what the statutory range is, the guidelines range can differ quite a bit depending on whether you take into account you know, uh, some crack or don't take into account some crack. And some of the courts of appeals have, in fact, held that in a case like this, if you accept that the verdict was ambiguous, the judge would be limited to taking into account only the powder cocaine that was involved. Now, we think that those cases are, uh, that issue is presented here on the facts of this case, because it would make a big difference to these petitioners whether they are sentenced for powder or for crack. But we think that those cases that would limit the court to powder under the guidelines are flatly inconsistent with this court's uh, sentencing jurisprudence. Uh, most recently, obviously, the decision last term in Watts and uh, the court's decision in Witte. Um, we know from Watts that even if they had been charged, as petitioners say, they could have been with two separate conspiracies, and the jury had acquitted on the crack conduct, that the crack cocaine could have been taken into account at sentencing by the judge. And it cannot be true that that is permissible, but that it's not permissible to do so here. But the, the, the commission could deal with that as it wishes, couldn't it? I mean, if the commission said, uh, look, uh, uh, what we think you have to do is sentence the person to 10 years if he has uh, 5 grams of, of crack, and you have to sentence him to 2 years if it's 5 grams of, of uh, cocaine, and uh, you, the sentencing judge, uh, are to take as a, uh, uh, an assumption of what the amounts are, uh, that which is found by the jury, and if there is no jury finding, you will assume blah, blah, blah. They, they could write a guideline like that, couldn't they? And, well, and if they don't like the way the judges are doing it, they can write the opposite guideline. I think there may be some question about whether the commission would have power to do anything that would seem to trench on what this court said in Watson. But if, if, the, if the courts are, that find the way you think is wrong are finding that way because they think the guidelines require them to do so, 
then the answer would be that the Commission could make clear that that isn't oh. what the guidelines require. Yes, absolutely. That, that's true. So there's if, nothing for us to decide. If the courts feel they're being bound by the guidelines, but as we pointed out in our, in our acquiescence in this case, there's no indication. Uh, the, the cases in the Court of Appeals that have held that the district judge is limited in sentencing to, to the lesser drug uh, not only don't address that issue, they don't even mention the guidelines. I mean, it's one of our quarrels with them. They seem to be innocent of the developments in sentencing law under the guidelines. Um, so we would submit that those, uh, those cases are flatly wrong. That's what this case is really about. It's what's presented on the facts here. And uh, the decision on that issue ought to be clear. Now, it is true, as petitioners argue, that statutory maxima and minima trump whatever's in the guidelines. And it is therefore relevant to ask uh, what the verdict ambiguity does or should or might have to do with uh, setting the statutory minimum and maximum. Now, the short answer, as we pointed out in our brief, uh, in this case, is no effect. Because if you calculate, and we did do the math, and, uh, it's, uh, and, and petitioners have not demonstrated there's anything wrong with our math, that if you calculate the statutory ranges in this case based purely on the district judge's powder cocaine findings, you'll find that the sentences actually imposed in every case fall within permissible statutory range. So our submission would be there's no issue on the facts of this case under the statute. But should the court wish to proceed and consider that issue, uh, we think it's plain from the structure and language of the relevant statutes here, Section 846 and 841, um, that the answer to that is that these are sentencing factors for the trial judge. Now, Section 846, uh, which is on pages 1 and 2 of the appendix in the blue brief, says any person who attempts or conspires to commit any offense defined in this subchapter shall be subject to the same penalties and so on. The offenses are defined by the other sections in that portion of the United States Code. If you then look at 841, which is the object offense here, 841A defines the offense, and the offense is either possession or, or with the intent to distribute or distribution. Well, it can't, define, it can't define the offense if, indeed, as you just read, you are to be punished with the same penalties as those prescribed for the offense. There are no penalties prescribed for 841A. When you read 841A, you have no idea what the penalties are. So that cannot be the offense well, referred to in, in, in 846. Well, with, with respect, we would uh, obviously disagree with that. What you know from 846 is that you're looking for an object offense. The object offense is defined in 841A, which says unlawful acts, except as authorized and so on, you may not distribute or possess right. and distribute controlled substances. And if all now, I had before me was 841, I would agree. But you have before you 846, which you just read, which says any person who attempts or conspires to commit any offense defined in this chapter, shall be subject to the same penalties as those prescribed for the offense. There are no penalties prescribed for the offense of violating uh, 841A. I can read you 841A, and you can't tell me what penalty is prescribed for that. Well, you have to go down to B to figure respect, it out. I can, because what I'll say is you look down to B, which prescribes the penalties for the offense defined in A. Fine. I'm willing to accept B. Then, then B becomes part of the offense. Uh, we disagree about that. We disagree about that, obviously. And our, our analysis is that 841A defines an offense which is complete once the jury finds um, that you have distributed or manufactured or possessed with the intent um, a controlled substance. And it's true. They, in, in a substantive count, then in the nature of things, they will have to find a controlled substance involved. I would point out, as came out from some of the questions, in a conspiracy offense, that's not at all clear. There are certainly conspiracies which you could be charged and of which you could be found guilty, where you would have no idea what the type of substance involved was. Now, I grant you that will give rise in those cases if they, if they actually happen to strange sentencing issues uh, under <coughs> both 841B and under the guidelines, because it's not clear what you do with something where you really don't know even what type of drug was involved. But by the fact by that the, the minimum, would I think be that's now. an easy answer, isn't it? it? It's up to the government to prove uh, whatever is necessary to prove in order to impose a penalty. And if you can't figure out what it was, the most you can impose is the minimum, I would assume. What's hard about that? That's a potential answer to that question. It's, it's the only answer. The burden's on the government to establish uh, what needs to be established to impose the penalty, isn't it? Well, for present purposes, my point would be we would establish that at sentencing to the judge, and the conviction would be valid, even if it were true that we could not impose a term of imprisonment. 
the conviction and the special assessment and the record and so on would reflect uh, a conviction for a felony. That felony would be defined by 841A. It had nothing to do with 841B. 841B has to do with prescribing the penalties that are appropriate under particular circumstances for violations of 841A. And if, and if you commit the offense of conspiracy, you perhaps, under one view, would simply be subject to the risk of being sentenced based on what that conspiracy turned up, and the judge says it's 5 grams, it's 10 grams, whatever. That's absolutely right. And, and our point here is when you move into the realm of conspiracy, now 846 obviously covers a wide range, a range of different target statutes and so on, uh, and in this particular case, we're dealing with 846 referring to 841 uh, as, as the object statute. Um, we think it's fairly clear that what Congress would have intended here is when you are convicted of conspiracy to violate 841, what happens is the judge at sentencing looks at the complex of offense conduct involved in that conspiracy under very traditional uh, Pinkerton-type uh, conspiracy. If I can yeah, interrupt with this one question, I'm sure. What if, in this case, instead of a general verdict, you had a special verdict, and the jury, a whole stream of different alternatives, and the jury found not guilty as to nine out of the ten, but on one they said he was guilty of, of, of conspiring to distribute five grams of powder, and, and that's all. Uh, under your view, could the judge nevertheless sentence, the judge has a different view of the evidence, thinks he really committed, you know, 100 kilograms of crack. That's the judge's view. The judge could, could nevertheless sentence on the basis of his view of the evidence even in the conspiracy context? Well, with specific findings. I would say particularly in the conspiracy context. In the conspiracy context, the answer is clearly yes. Because as long as the conviction is valid, everything else is a sentencing factor. And as the court pointed out in in Watts, um, the difference in standard of proof makes a huge difference there. Because all the jury has said by declining to convict on the other counts is they weren't convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. But there's a big range there between that and preponderance of the evidence where the court can operate. Now, what I will say is it's a harder case if you have a substantive, a set of substantive distribution counts and the jury acquits on several but convicts on only one. Uh, because in that case, there's a, I think, a substantial statutory interpretation question that arises about what 841B means when it says, uh, in the case of a violation of subsection A involving. Um, now, the circuits are split on that issue and it's certainly not presented here, but it would not be unreasonable for a court to hold, and several courts of appeals have taken this route, but in a substantive distribution case, you are limited in terms of your statutory maximum by the offense conduct that would be dealt with in that one substantive distribution case. But that's not the government's view, is it? We haven't taken a position in this court on that, on that question, and I hesitate to concede it in this case because it's not presented, but it would certainly be a plausible, a plausible statutory outcome. Um, the Tenth Circuit has gone the other way on that question and has said that, no, all of these things are sentencing factors to be dealt with by the judge, even under the statute. I think, um, so we think that, uh, just to refer back to that language that I was just quoting, again, if we're talking about what is an element here and what is a sentencing factor, we think that the language of 841 is pretty clear on that. It's about as clear as you get. It's your position that, as with the guidelines, those sentencing factors only require judgment by a preponderance of the evidence. That's right. By the judge. So the right. judge That's makes the decision that it's more likely than not, by a hair, that, that, that this was crack rather than, rather than, uh, uh, than uh, powdered, and, and therefore you, you get 40 more years or 20 more years by a preponderance. Gee, I... Well, subject to statutory minima and maxima that might supervene, and... Uh, yeah, I'm talking about the maximum, that the statutory maximum I could have given you if it was one, you know, if, if it was powdered, is, is uh, I'm going to say 20, and, and the statutory maximum I can give you if it was uh, crack is 40 or 60. Uh, there's a big difference, depending on the quantity, I guess. And all the judge has to say is, well, it's a close question, but... Uh, by a hair, I think it's more likely that it was crack than powder, and therefore I'm going to give you I'm going to give you 60 years instead of 20. That, that doesn't seem to you something wrong with that. Well, if we're talking about the simple distribution offense, and, we're, and if the question is under 841B, are all of those always just at the decision of the judge? I think that is a difficult question, and we will certainly address it in the case it arises. It doesn't arise in this case, partly because it's a conspiracy case. In a conspiracy case. We think what happens is what happened here, which is the judge goes through all the evidence very carefully. And I commend to you the, the very, very detailed uh, sentencing findings that the judge made in this case. And he goes through all the evidence, sifts it, and decides, in this case, not very favorably to the government, I would add, 
um, what the quantities of drugs are, what, what types of drugs are involved, and what quantities can be properly attributed to any given defendant. And uh, in this case, it makes no difference under the, under the um, statute because whatever all of his findings that he made for purposes of the guidelines put these, these defendants in the right statutory minimum and maximum range, or the same range, depending on how you, how you calculate it. Well, what if it did make a difference? That's the point. The government it did make a difference. I think in a conspiracy case, the result would be the same, because even the courts that have held, even the courts of appeals that have held that you need to be limited by the offense of conviction have said, well, of course, uh, in a conspiracy case, when you're talking about defining what was involved in the offense of conviction for 841B purposes, you pick up Pinkerton principles and principles of vicarious liability. So that, that ends up being either indistinguishable from or very, very close to the relevant conduct inquiry under the guidelines. So in a conspiracy case, we really think there is no substantial issue about that, that your statutory uh, maximum and minimum are going to be set by the same process as your guidelines uh, sentence. And there's really nothing and if wrong with that. it's not a conspiracy case and it makes a huge difference, you want to say you're not going to say. Our position for purposes of argument in this case is that uh, the judge has the authority to decide that, but I acknowledge that it's a very difficult. There's several, I mean, are you talking, which question? I mean, there's a question reserved in Watts, I take it. The question reserved in Watts is whether a sentencing factor uh, can be decided by a judge uh, by a preponderance of the evidence or whether the judge might decide it beyond a reasonable doubt. That's one question which we haven't decided, I guess. Is that right? That's correct. A separate question is who has to decide. Another question might be uh, whether you have to get notice in an indictment and whether it's called an element or something. I mean, there are a bunch of questions there. There what are. We have to decide here. There are any number of questions that you don't have to decide here, and we would urge the court to stick generally to the facts of this case because I think that's useful. And I think the facts of this case are typical. But in response to Justice O'Connor's question, I, I understood that to be about the limited question in a simple distribution case uh, where there is a certain amount of, of the, there's one distribution, for instance, at issue. And the question is then, does the judge get to decide what is involved in that distribution? And I, and I would submit the following intermediate position, which is there may be circumstances where all that is proved to the jury uh, might be a small amount of one drug, for instance, but that on particular facts, the judge might be able to conclude that because of suppression motion or for some other reason, the jury didn't see all of the conduct that was involved in that particular distribution. And we would say certainly in that case that it is a sentencing decision for the judge to make about what was involved with that particular offense. But it's a substantially difficult question. I can't honestly tell you what the government's position would be in this court on the question of one where it was perfectly clear what was involved in that distribution, perfectly clear that was the only conviction, and then there was Would other conduct that was not to be taken into account. And one minor point. Have we decided that the judge in the sentencing proceeding can rely on illegally seized evidence in, in making this determination? You just suggested he might know about it through a suppression motion, for example. Did we said that's per permissible? I don't think it's quite a sentence. That your position is it's permissible? I think that that's, that's your example you happen to pick to explain what the judge could see that the jury might not see. It's another question that's not presented, but yes, I think under the statute to say that anything can come no, out of something. He only has to do it by a preponderance. He can do it even if the jury finds him not guilty and even if he relies on illegal evidence. Pretty well, extreme. We've decided the issue if it's a not guilty finding, haven't we? In watch. Yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Mr. Dumont, would you explain again, because I don't understand it, how, how it's possible that you can come out with, with one response to Justice O'Connor's question where, where it's a conspiracy charge, but a different response where you're being prosecuted for simple distribution? I mean, it seems to me if your answer is in simple, in simple distribution, we're not going to let the judge do it. I don't see why, why you can let the judge do it in the conspiracy thing, since... The conspiracy statute refers to the distribution statute. Well, it's, it's not a constitutional question. It's a statutory question. Yes. The point is the statutory analysis proceeds as follows. 18, 841A uh, defines an offense, unlawful acts. Then B says, as to penalties, um, any person who violates subsection A uh, shall be sentenced as follows. And then the right. form of the following phrase is, in the case of a violation, of subsection A involving. Right. Now, it's always been the government's position, as, as uh, my colleague points out, that for distribution, simple distribution, each possession or distribution of each drug is a separate offense. And it, it is consistent with that to say 
that if you are convicted of only one substantive count, then when you get to B, what you have to look at is what is involved in that substantive count. What's different about conspiracy is that when you come to apply 846 in the 841 context, you're told by 846, okay, if they conspire to commit an 841 offense, you need to, they'll be subject to the same penalties as those for 841. The same, we interpret that language as have the courts of appeals that have looked at this to say, well, what you are liable for in the conspiracy context under Pinkerton and all the vicarious liability cases is your conduct, the conduct of your co-conspirators in furtherance of the conspiracy. And so that is the universe of what you're liable for. You take all of that, making those findings, and then you, you come up with a number of drugs and a, and a quantity of drugs, and then you apply the statutory guidelines, in effect, that Congress has provided in 841B. Well, I guess, I guess what I'm saying, I don't see how that's, how that's rational. I mean, if, if it refers to the offense in, in 841, and if you're treating 841 as consisting not of one offense in A, but of each one being a separate offense, for purposes of double jeopardy and, and everything else, I, I don't see how you can treat it any differently for purposes of H46, which refers to the offense in 841. But I understand your position. I you understand our position, and I, yeah. and I would point out that um, <coughs> the court reviewed in, in Chapman the history of the drug statute, yeah. and one thing I would point out about that is when Congress enacted the current form of H41B in 1986, what it had in mind was setting three broad categories, sort of kingpin distributors, serious street-level distributors, and then regular distributors. And we think it would be odd if what Congress accomplished through all of this was to say that in a conspiracy case where every normal principle of construction tells us that when you're found guilty of the conspiracy, you are then liable for all the conduct involved in the conspiracy, it would be a, a passing odd result to find that when you apply that under the statutory structure, you end up with something different. Uh, so that if you have somebody who's participated in a long-term, broad-scale, wide distribution conspiracy that suddenly you are limited at sentencing to taking into account something other than that conduct. I think um, I'd just like to clear up two persistent sources of misconception, I think, uh, in this case. One... May I ask first if you, if you agree with Judge Easterbrook that it would be sufficient if the, if the indictment simply alleged controlled substance without any identification? For the purposes we are centrally concerned with here, yes, it would be sufficient. Now, it raises another set of questions, and I think the courts have consistently said that. They've said, well, it, an indictment is sufficient if it char charges in terms of the statute. But the defendant has to know enough about the case to defend. But, of course, there are notice principles that come in, both under the rules, under, the, under practice, and under the Constitution, that require the defendant have adequate notice of what he's being charged with, uh, both for purposes of defense at trial and for purposes of pleading in bar. And I would point out that there's a... There's a whole body of cases in the Court of Appeals about how you distinguish one conspiracy from another for purposes of double jeopardy, and I think that would be, for instance, relevant in that context. Um, if I might just point out that there's a lot of talk about dual-object conspiracies here, and it, it's a source of a lot of confusion in the briefs, um, and I think with respect in my colleagues' argument. The, the indictment here charged a dual-object conspiracy in the sense that it charged both possession with intent and distribution, each of which is a separate offense under 841. Now, they happen to be, in this case, uh, offenses that violate the same substantive statute. Um, it did not charge a dual-object conspiracy by charging that there was both cocaine and crack cocaine involved in this conspiracy. Those are means of satisfying the same element of either the distribution offense or the possession offense. They are not objects of the conspiracy. And I think it's quite important, actually, conceptually, to keep that in mind. Um, the offense of conviction. The object of the conspiracy was either to distribute or to possess with intent to distribute. That's correct. And we know from Griffin that if there was sufficient evidence to convict on either one of those, and there clearly was, they concede that there was, the convictions are perfectly valid. But it is false and misleading to say, oh, well, this is dual objects because one object was crack and one object was powder. That's just not the way it works. Um, the other Thing, the offense of conviction, which we talk about, both in terms of 841 as a statute... Excuse me, just, just before you go on, I, that, that's quite correct, uh, unless you accept uh, your, your colleague's uh, view of, uh, of, uh, of what 846 requires. I mean, if, if, if you acknowledge that 846 does require you to charge something other than an intent to distribute uh, some controlled substance, 
and if you acknowledged uh, his view that it requires you to, uh, to, to specify a controlled substance, then it, then it would be a dual object uh, under his view of the world. Under his view of the world, I think that's right, and, and there would be there would be more serious problems than figuring out the sentence, frankly, because I think there would be problems with convictions, although they've never uh, stood up to the plate on that one. Um, again, here, the offense of conviction, which is important, is a conspiracy to distribute controlled substances. Um, and I think if we look, as my colleague was suggesting, at the indictment and at the statute, he said, well, if you didn't specify quantity, the maximum statutory sentence would be 20 years, and we would quite strongly disagree with that. If you get an indictment uh, that charges you with participating in a drug conspiracy and no quantity is specified, when you look at the statute, you ought to be on notice, you are on notice, that the maximum penalty is life in prison. It depends on the quantity, which is something that hasn't been specified. Now, you may want to seek clarification of that in one way or another. But it is you still not have the, bills of particulars? Uh, they absolutely do, Your Honor. Um, it is not true that you somehow know from that indictment that your exposure is limited to 20 years. Um, so I might just return to the fact that there is one real and straightforward issue in this case, and the other, and that is the guidelines issue that I was dealing with earlier. And the circuits are in conflict on that issue, and the court ought to resolve it in the way we think is plainly correct uh, under Watson Witte. The other questions we've been considering are very interesting, and they may, in fact, be difficult in some future case that presents them. Uh, but this case, when we return to our sheep, is really a very simple one, and the judgment below ought to be affirmed. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Dumont. Mr. Chauvin, you have two minutes remaining. Mr. Chief Justice, the, um, the issue that is not before the court is the guideline issue. Quite frankly, this case doesn't raise the concerns of the guidelines. It raises the question of the statutory maximum and the offense of conviction. And that's the starting point. Even before the, the district court could proceed to the question of the sentencing guidelines, it had to know what the offense of conviction was, and it had to know what the well, statute were all had. these sentences within the range of the powdered uh, cocaine range? The answer to that question is no. No? It's really we don't know, but it's very likely that it the is no. The government says it's calculated them all, and the answer is yes. But what the government has relied upon, Your Honor, is the findings of the court after having considered the, the defendants of, being, of having been convicted of a conspiracy that we don't know that they were convicted of. And so now, after the fact, that uh, we have a determination by the, the sentencing court, if the judge were to look at this anew and say the conspiracy uh, of which they were convicted was powder cocaine distribution, then the court might say, well, I think that the amount of powder cocaine is less than I previously attributed to this conspiracy, because then I thought the conspiracy embraced both crack cocaine and powder cocaine. After all, in this conspiracy, there were quantities of powder cocaine that were converted into crack cocaine. And, for example, with respect to Petitioner Wintersmith, he was held accountable for 540 uh, grams of powder cocaine. Um, if just 40 grams of that substance were attributable to the crack conspiracy, that is, that part of the conspiracy that had to do with converting the powder to crack and selling it out of a drug house, um, just a diminution of that 40 grams would mean that his maximum penalty was 20 years. Now, he received a sentence of 21 years, uh, less than the 40-year maximum that would have been applied at a 500-gram level. And so we think that the similar analysis applies to each of the petitioners in varying degrees. Certainly, with regard to some of the petitioners, there was more evidence, there was a greater involvement in the conspiracy. And, and that is the central problem with these dual-object conspiracies. The government could potentially bring a case which has very strong Thank evidence. Thank you, Mr. Schobeck. Your time has expired. The case is submitted.